section, two on turn, but the hole in your front, front pass, fire! Zero four zero Alpha confirm that's bombs dropping on Mazdrak. Fucking hell! Okay, sweet. Um, I guess I guess I'll start at the the website and how that all started and everything. So yeah, I was getting out of the military and you know I'm not sure what the dynamic is in like the British military when when you're all leaving, um, but most people leaving the American forces you just, you're, you're wanting for something better than what they offer. And it kind of falls into to three main buckets that, that I saw. One, it felt like we were all just being pushed into a, a job that they didn't necessarily, the government wanted to like check the box. They wanted to just get us a job and ensure that we were employed after we left the military. Right. So that, so that's a check that the, you know, the military do before you leave, they, they make sure that you're going to a job. They don't just leave you and to go unemployed. Is that well, one of the prerequisites to leaving? No, no, it, it's not like a hard and fast thing, but like we do have to do some, some transition courses and everything during the process of leaving. Yeah. And all of that prep work, it just felt like we were being pushed into, we just want you to get a job, just any job. We don't care necessarily if it's fulfilling, if it's, meet your expectations, whatever. We just like are really trying to encourage you to just get something, right? Uh, but it's, it's not a guarantee and it's not a prereq to leave. So that was one part. Yeah. And the, the next part was, so a lot of vets, both, you know, officers and enlisted leave and already have a, an undergraduate degree. So now like they're prime candidates to go get a graduate degree. And there just isn't a whole lot of information out there about for anybody about being a veteran trying to go get a graduate degree, all right? And the last bucket was there's a gazillion resources out there, all kinds of nonprofits and charities and everything, but they're all over the place. And what I wanted to try and do was consolidate. And so I kind of happened to have a, a bit of an inclination to write, and I was, like, feeling the desire to, like, start my own thing anyway. And so all that kind of coalesced into me starting to write on my website and then after a couple months, I was like, okay, well, I feel like a podcast is just the, the next evolution of this. Um, and it provides me like a little bit different form to, to have conversations with people. Yeah. <clears throat> so that was your personal experience then. Is that right? Is that what led you to, you know, you know identify those three, um, those three things that, that you'd actually went through that yourself? Yeah, totally. I mean, that was a 100% personal experience. And I've generally taken the, the approach with most things of, if I'm experiencing it, odds are someone else is as well. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not that special that <laughs> no one else is feeling the same thing, right? Uh, and in, like, talking with my friends and everyone who's gotten out, they're like, yeah, no, that, that, that totally resonates. And, like, that, that's what I felt. Um, so I've gotten a lot of, like, feedback coming back to me saying, like, yes, I was feeling the same things that you're feeling and glad to see someone's trying to do something about it. Yeah, I mean, it's a very daunting uh, prospect for someone who's had such a steady and secure job. Secure being, you know, massively undervalued when you're in. You don't realize how secure that job is and how in unsecure civilian employment is. Um, but yeah, that steady paycheck that comes in 
in the States twice a month and in the UK once a month is, you know, you feel it when you leave. Yeah. Um, and it's so valuable when you're in, you know, and a lot of people, you know, once they get to a certain point in their career, it's like, right, it doesn't really make much sense for me to leave right now. So they kind of just get stuck into the, into the, um, the chocolate factory, if you will, <clears throat> of military life. And, you know, you're happy just, you know, winding out a, a desk job for the last sort of eight, 10 years of your career. But um, what was it that uh, inspired you to actually start doing something about it, though? About, like, getting out or about addressing the, the problem? Um, I guess addressing the problem, yeah, like starting your website and your blog. Because it's, it's one thing identifying it, but another thing actually trying to do something about it. Yeah, so I've kind of always had a bit of a, an entrepreneurial itch, and I kind of put that to the, the back burner while I was in the military, just because, you know, me personally, and if other people don't do this, that's, I, I totally understand, but I didn't want to distract from my, my military career by trying to, like, do something on the sides, but then as I started getting out, I was like, okay, now, like, the space is being created for me to try my own hand at something, so I felt that need. I personally was going through the pain point of lack of information, of feeling like I was being pushed into a job and being like, okay, well, I can do this research just as well as anyone else. So like might as well try to start doing this research and putting the information out there for others. How soon was it before you started though? Um, because uh, I know uh, through reading one of your uh blog posts you got a lot of terminal leave and it's kind of you're just kind of in the wind at that time did you start straight straight away or was there a bit of period of time you know trying to go through difficult stuff in civilian life in the transition before you started or was it almost instantaneous so i i officially left the military in december this past december and i think i started writing in like october and so i was kind of starting to see the writing on the wall of yeah of everything um and that's when i felt the need to start writing about it yeah i mean the stuff that you've you've got on your website's in massively valuable i mean not necessarily um direct correlation directly valuable to the uk because of the corporations and stuff that you're talking about but some of the the, the lessons that you're putting out there you know the one i've actually got written down here the the uh the blog nobody nobody owes you shit that is yeah. honestly perfect that is perfect. I read it um, uh, last week, I think, and then I just read it, reread it again today, and I was like, I was laughing both times. It's like it's so spot on. Um, if you would just talk about that that blog post, if you you know if it's uh, off uh, offhand. Yeah, sure. And um, I, I, as I approach it, it'll probably be kind of like a little particular to the United States, but I'm sure a lot of the dynamics, if it's resonating with you, a lot of the dynamics are, are probably the same. Yeah, because uh, they're they're personal. They're personal. Um, you know, it's, it's not necessarily the the, uh, the the system. It's more personal, you know, points that you're picking up here. Yeah, yeah. So from like a broader perspective, uh, I'll start off with, you know, since like the global war on terror started, um, we've been like very fortunate that our nation has separated the war from the warfighter, right? So like when I talk from, when I talk with veterans coming back from Vietnam, they had a totally different experience of coming back. You know, people calling them baby killers and spitting on them and all that shit. Whereas, you know, our generation has come home and been just media with congratulations and balloons and parades and like everyone 
everyone loves to support a vet, right? So we've kind of had our, our heads inflated a little bit that when you get out, oh, well, everyone loves me because I'm a veteran and I served and I have all this great experience. And you're, you get kind of told that oh, when you, when you're a vet, like you're going to get a job. Someone's going to give you what you want. You're going to you know, pick up your paperwork and walk out the front gate and someone's going to be there with a ticker tape parade and like a silver platter to hand you your next thing. And generally what I found is like support only goes as far as maybe someone buying you a beer at the bar. Right. And then after that, that's like the thank you after that, like you got to prove yourself and show what you're worth. Yeah. Um, so it's very much an idea like nobody. And I, I very much hate like the, the entitled attitude of you know, like, I chose to serve. No one, no one pushed me into this. No one made me do it. And so I don't think anyone owes me anything for that because that was a personal decision that I made. And if you, you know, serve in all volunteer military, then, you know, you made that decision. So no one should owe you anything. Like that was a personal decision that you made. Uh, so yeah, you're not owed fucking shit just because you made that decision. <clears throat> yeah, I could uh, 100% real, um, um, get on board with that, that blog post that, when I, as I was reading, I was like, this is honestly so spot on. I went through the exact same things. Um, like I got a medical discharge um, th- uh, from chronic knee pain on both knees. And as soon as I got that injury, like I was, at, I was you know, flying in my career. Um, and as soon as I got that injury and I couldn't do, you know, regular duties with the company anymore, then that was it. Zero. Like um, promotions became extremely difficult because, you're, you know, you're not able to compete for them physically regardless of how well you're still doing, you know, at, at your day-to-day job in barracks and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, if you can't go and exercise and if you can't do, you know, attend company PT, regardless of how good of a soldier you were or are, then it doesn't matter. Uh, and, you know, that that lesson I learned in the, in the military wasn't um, something that I'd experienced before because all I'd ever experienced before was success. Um, and it's, you know, I never, ever thought that, that my organization would be able to turn their back on me like they did and that's i'm not i don't hold it against them like that's how it, that's how it fucking is like if you're not providing the goods then good luck uh yeah. see you later we've got plenty more numbers to push through yeah um but yeah getting out like it, it was very much the same same sort of thing like i, I had a, a long period of um um you know uncertainty about exactly how I was going to get out and then eventually came in like a, you know, a three week, you know, flash the bang and then I was out and then, you know, that was it. Like, see you later. They, they gave me a date. It's like uh, when I'm terminal leave, they says, oh, I'll come back on this date and hand your uh, ID card in and you'll have a formal interview and then that'll be it. But, you know, at that point I was like, you know, I went to the States and I was like, no, fuck it. I'm not going back. Like, you know, after being treated like a, you know, piece of shit i was just like you know the, the least i'm doing is attending your shitty interview so uh, i left my id card in the guard room uh and just walked out yeah. <laughs> kind of my last fuck you yeah yeah and what i think is like important to remember about this this dynamic of no one knows your shit is that it affects everybody you know like just the other day everyone from you know a, a young specialist or private all the way up to generals and like tier one operators you know I heard a story about a, a two-star, like a special forces two-star who got out and he was talking with this, uh, this guy helping him out with his resume. And he said, I've never had to get a cell phone before because the army had always provided him a cell phone. 
like it sounds fucking crazy and bonkers to me for a number of reasons, but regardless, like now he's got to figure that out and no one's going to do that for him except for him. Right. And I've talked with former like tier one guys who, I mean, these are the elite of the elite in the military, but again, just cause now you're entering the civilian workforce and great. You were in Delta force or still team six. No one's just going to magically hand you a job and say like, here's the rest of your life planned out for you. Like you got to fucking figure it out yourself. I mean, your, your, uh, your reputation, your military reputation, you know, if you've got one of those taglines attached to your special forces, you know, SEAL Team 6 Delta, geez, oh, like, you're going to get it easier, uh, but you're definitely not, it's definitely not, you know, guaranteed, like you said. But for regular, regular guys, uh, it's extremely, extremely um, hard to, to handle, I would, I would guess. I mean, for me, I never really, I, re- I almost kind of understood it was going to be like that. But I never realized how hard it was going to be to, you know, um, prove my worth uh, in the civilian sector. But for regular guys who who are getting out and who think that they can just lean on that veteran status or their military career statuses, you know, and they aren't aware of the, you know, the possibility that people might not care. Um, and like you said, no one does all your shit. It's, it's, it, in the civilian, and now I've been out in the civilian sector, I understand why. Because it's not, um, you might be a, a good door kicker and you might be able to lead troops with a force and aggression, but you know the civilian world isn't like that unless you're getting into contracting or something like that overseas. But there really isn't any other jobs that you know require you know that aggressive you know macho alpha male type uh, type role in a job, um, and it's the soft skills you know being able to handle customers' problems you know face to face. Um, having to you know deal with email chains and paperwork and um, logistics and you know all that stuff that, that the civilian sector, uh, like you said, have had years of experience. And, you know, um, and you try and fit into that with all your your you know macho um, war stories and your macho experience. It just you know sometimes it's not it's not a fit. You know it's, you know it's a square peg in a round hole. It's, um, it's definitely not easy to to mesh into that type of world. Like I personally have found that I've had to become um, a more softer character and open to um, interpersonal relationships more. Like normally, I'm just like I'm not interested in getting to know people and I'm not interested in communicating. But in the civilian world, you have to, you have to be open to, you know, speaking to. I don't know. Let's say. In my job now, I'm speaking to like a whole bunch of diverse characters. And before, I just wouldn't be interested in like, I've got nothing in common with most women. So I generally just wouldn't talk to women. Like, unless yeah. I was trying to flirt with them or whatever, like, I just wouldn't bother. But now I'm now like in my work for, uh, environment now, I'm like, I'm understanding that if I was just to be like, uh, have that same, um, same persona around them, I'm going to get, I'm going to get nowhere. You know, you know, these people influence their, their boss and their boss is the ones who influence my boss. You know, so if, if I'm an asshole or if I'm standoffish with these people that I'm working with, uh, just because I, I don't care to get to know them, you know, it's, it's, it, it swings in roundabouts between me and them, but it eventually comes back to harm me. Um, and it's the soft skills like that in a personal relationships that is what's uh, what a veteran might not have because they've just never had to, you know, to learn that. Um, how do you how, how do you think that that um, 
my description of that was, you know, fits with what you're, what you're thinking as well. Yeah, I think, so the way I try and frame it is I think that like, you probably, we all probably have experiences in the military in communicating to different audiences. It's just that like the range of those audiences is a little more narrow, right? So like I was a, an infantry platoon leader. So how I communicated with my, my machine gunner is going to be different than how I communicate with my company commander, right? But in the, like, the narrow spectrum of the infantry world, it's still, there's still a lot of like similar lingo. There's still a lot of co- common language and everything. But when you enter the civilian world, like that's going to broaden up a lot more um, because now you got to communicate to a customer and that's going to be very different than how you communicate to, you know, if you're in customer service, the, the engineer um, who has like a totally different lingo and then your boss or your boss's boss or something uh, like the spectrum of, of your window of communication is going to be larger and wider and the people inside of there are going to be a lot more different um, in every shape, form, fashion, size than you'll probably find in the military. <clears throat> yeah, I totally agree with that. Um, coming from an enlisted guy, uh, I would I would say that the you know the range of audience doesn't really isn't as vast as it is for an officer, say, uh, because it's I'm imagining that if you're speaking to colonel, major, or whatever, then you're going to have to up your game a little bit and talk a bit more eloquently and make sure that you're you know um, putting out some good content to, to to give them that warm fuzzy feeling that you know what you're doing, but. If you're an enlisted guy, you can talk to the the commander, you can talk to the the um, platoon leader, you can talk to the, the the other private soldier, the exact same because that's who you are. Like you don't need to put on a face. Um, I mean, it might help if you want if you want a successful chance of promotion, but you don't really need to. Like you're going to you're going to promote regardless of if you change your the way you communicate with others. I mean, if you're just a straight asshole, then you you know you're not going to you're not going to progress. But if you're like, I don't know, let's say like a, a guy from a deprived area, and you just don't really change your character, to, regardless of who you're talking to, then you know people see that for what it is, and you know it's not a negative necessarily. But um, yeah, the point is that the an enlisted guy probably doesn't have that range of you know audience that an officer might have. Um, and might not have the experience to understand that you have to change your um, communication style for different audiences. <clears throat> yeah. And, you know, in looking at the, the enlisted guys that I worked with who have gotten out and, have, you know, are having really successful careers, I think the common thread that I've seen in all of them has been, you know, they're, they're absolutely proud of like their enlisted service, but they've kind of made a point, I think, to say, you know what? I was a little bit tight-casted. I was maybe like restrained in my opportunities because I, I was enlisted and maybe I didn't have the, the chances to speak to the colonel or the major or whatever. Um, but hey, now I'm a civilian and I can do what I want and I don't have to be like tight-casted into this role and I can create my own role for myself. And so like I've seen some junior enlisted guys that I worked with go on to some really great careers because they decided that like, I'm going to move beyond this, this shell and this script that people created for me and create my own shell. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Again, I, I completely agree. I, I, I completely understand and agree. Um, but you mentioned earlier on that you're an entrepreneurial uh, type character at heart. Like where did that start? And what was, uh, you know, like let's say if it did start at a young age, what then led you to join the military rather than pursuing that entrepreneurial um, career? Yeah, so it, it really started, you know, when I was a kid growing up, 
I'm not sure if there's the same thing in the UK, but anytime it snows, I would always be out there like hustling the neighbors trying to, you know, make a few extra bucks shoveling their sidewalks or no kids, kids in the UK are fucking lazy, man. (laughs) (laughs) And then during the summer, I always had a nice little like lawn mowing business going on. Uh, Luckily subsidized by my parents who, you know, were paying for the gas and the lawnmower and everything. Yeah. But mostly I just wanted, you know, cash for video games and and candy and everything. Right. Uh, And then I think that just kind of took a sideline like probably everybody else in our, our generation of nine 11 happened. And, you know, I had friends going off to Iraq and Afghanistan and I just felt like that's where I needed to be. And, you know, I was like a, a fit able-bodied young man. And I just felt like that's where I had to be. And if I wasn't going there, if I wasn't going into the military, then I was just not putting um, my best self out there for everybody. Yeah. Well, how old are you? I'm 31. All right, uh, I'm 29, so not we're not too dis, uh, dissimilar. So, what what was uh, you mentioned 9/11 there? What was your personal experience of of uh, you know, obviously being an American in America while 9/11 was happening or happened? Like uh, 9/11? Yeah, like uh, like I'm sure like like I can remember where I was, and I'm a Brit. You know what I mean? Like I'm sure you can as well. Um, but like what the point I'm maybe trying to get is like how much of a, a personal um i don't even know what the what the word would be how much of an effect did that personally have on you in, in your life because right even now like i watched the documentary with my wife uh, last year and like i fucking i was crying like the whole time like yeah. it affects me so much just seeing that that episode yeah i don't even know if it was so much the you know the events of 9-11 as much as it was everything else that happened after that and just seeing, you know, tens of thousands of young men and women my age going off to war um, as a response to that event and just feeling that like I needed to be a part of, of that response. Yeah. And uh, obviously did you, did you join as an officer? Yeah. 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 So I, I did uh, how it works in the States is like I did, a program coinciding with my, my bachelor's degree. And then like when I graduated, I get commissioned as an officer and it's like that. Right. Okay. Um, so you had to do college before you could become, um, an active duty yeah. member of the U S army. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> what did you get your degree in? I was an English major. Oh really? Yeah. So actually there's a, a everyone always questions that like, Oh, you're an infantry officer and you're an English major. And there was a point where me, my company commander and my battalion commander, we're all English majors. There's like a very, uh, there's like a pretty high ratio of English and history majors in the infantry world. Really? Yeah. Why do you think that is? Um, one, so I know like me personally, I knew I was going directly into the army. So I was like, fuck it. My degree doesn't really matter that much. Right. So I'm going to do something that I like and I like to read and write. Uh, so English just kind of worked out for me. But, I think but is, English, is English not one of those actual degrees that actually mean something? You know, you've got philosophy, you could do a whole bunch of, you know, these, these uh, degrees that actually mean nothing, that you could, you know, get an easy ride with a degree. Um, so, but English, I feel, is, you know, like one of those legit degrees. Eh, kind of, I guess. No? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like most people I went to school with are probably doing some type of writing, but I think it has absolutely helped me out in just communicating. Right? Yeah. I, mean, 
I had to write a shit ton of reports as an officer and having a bit of an English background and like having a, a, a writing background absolutely helped me out. And it's not even just that. I mean, like, you know, when you enter the civilian world and it's writing emails to people or communicating in any way, I mean, being able to effectively communicate is always a skill that's going to be useful for you. Um, so when you're at university, did you do the, um, what's the, what's the program called when you, when you're going to become an officer at university? It's called a, uh, ROTC. ROTC, yeah, yeah. Did you do that? Yeah, yeah, that's what I did. Yeah, and how how far into that program was it before you you decided that you're um, heading down the infantry route? Oh, probably like day one. You know, (laughs) I was like, you know what? If I'm going, if I'm going into the army, then I'm gonna go into the army. You know, and to me, that that was the infantry. How was that program then? Did did you find the uh, value in it yeah yeah i mean i had a i had a really exceptional program had some really top-notch instructors um it was i kind of caught like a, a good group of people who had been in the military prior to 9-11 and now they were on like the tail end of their career but this was you know 2009 2010 or so so they had gotten like a good amount of experience before 9-11 and then they were uh, you know, like your staff sergeants and your sergeant first classes when 9-11 happened. And then again, like a good couple of deployments in uh, yeah. at that kind of leadership level. And then now they're able to bring that experience to us as cadets. So I got like, a really good crop of NCOs that, that trained us. And our, um, the, the majority of our training came from U.S. NCOs. That's awesome. Um, <clears throat> so what was it? The um, pipeline then for when you finish university, how soon is it before that you actually end up becoming a, you know, getting to your active duty station? Yeah, so uh, about three weeks after I graduated, um, I started, I entered active duty, and then I had about, uh, I had to do like a couple of months working at this, this training facility for a little while, and then you go to the infantry officer basic course, which is 16 weeks, and then right after that, um, the majority of those graduates then go to army ranger school and that can take you, you know, if you go straight through, it takes you nine weeks. Uh, I took the extended tour. So it took me four months, uh, which is, is pretty normal. I think like half yeah. the people, you know, have to redo one cycle or the other. So I, uh, I spoke to a guy yesterday who's a captain as well. And he was with the yeah. 101st. Yep. He's done the exact same pipeline. So IOC, IOC and then um, straight into Ranger School, he, he, he failed his, uh, I, think he, I think he said it was Derby phase. Does that ring a bell? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he failed that and then he had to, he had to redo that and then and he got a straight, uh, straight slingshot through for the rest of the course. But um, how did you find the, you know, that, you know, that you're not a student anymore get, and becoming a real, a real man? <laughs> how was that sort of like a life experience change for you? You know, um, lots of people, I think, want to look back at, at Ranger School in particular and be like, that was a waste of time or like that. It sucks. It fucking sucks. There's, there's no other way to say it. But some things that I definitely learned there, and you don't have to have gone through through Ranger School to like get these things out of your military experience, but it's doing really hard shit and showing yourself that you're capable of doing some really hard shit and that just because you're tired or just because you're hungry – like you're going to be fine. You can get through it. 
And if you work with the other people around you who are experiencing the same discomfort and pain that you are, you can get something done. And, you know, I probably had like one of my lowest moments there in my life of just, I don't think I'm ever going to make it out of here. This sucks. <laughs> like completely doubting myself in every facet of me as a man. And then my buddies came over and were like, you know, Mark, we're going to be okay. We're going to get you through this. And, you know, we all end up graduating together. Um, and so like having gone through like that tough shit helps you out. Cause it makes, it just gives you that, that perspective and that relativism that, you know, whatever you're going through in life, like you've been through some tough things, you'll, you'll make it through whatever it is you're going that going through this. <clears throat> and, um, from, from personal experience as well, doing, you know, just doing tough, uh, tough courses, when you get to your unit, like the, the, the experience itself doesn't really count for anything because you, by the time you're doing the course, you mean, you, you probably do know all the subject matter. It's just the experience that builds something inside of you. Um, you, ha you now know that you have the confidence to attack, you know, challenges head on. And, that, you know, if, if you've done this previous stuff before and it's horrendous and it's miserable and you still manage to, you know, um, work effectively and get through it then it's you know it's, it does build a confidence that most people can't and won't uh, be able to attain in their life because they just sure. aren't exposed to that um that hardship yeah and like showing up to my my first unit as a you know a brand new second lieutenant um and you know meeting my platoon sergeant who had like 70 months deployed or something like that <laughs> right uh, he's got like twice as many months in combat as i have in the army all right but he's like, okay, you know, Mark's been through ranger school. He's probably not going to quit on me. He is at least like fairly tactically competent. So this is a lieutenant that I can work with, all right? He's not going to bitch out, and I, I have confidence in him, and like he and I can work together. He's still got a lot to learn. He doesn't know everything, but we, we can work together. Yeah, so what was the, um, what was the, the transition like from obviously – when you finish ranger school, I'm guessing that you're feeling like you're a big fish in a small pond. Uh, but then um, when you get to your unit, it's, you know, the roles reversed. You're now a, a small fish in a big pond again. Uh, do you feel daunted at the, ta the, the uh, prospect of having to take over your platoon or are you, are you pumped about it? I, I was definitely pumped about it. And I had a really excellent, uh, command climate and like I worked for some really good leaders you know on the enlisted and the officer side all around um and so I, I really they they set me up for success every which way you know my my bosses kind of gave me gave me enough room to hang myself but were there to to back me up if I did um and then I had some really strong NCOs that made sure that the chances of me hanging myself were slim <laughs> uh, you're, you're going to do it like uh in that first two, you know couple of weeks when you when you get a new platoon commander in, it's, everyone's going to, you know, it's, it's just a fucking test in the water phase, you know. Yeah. How much can we get away with this guy? How, yeah. how, is he a good guy? Is he, is he a shit guy? Like, what's, uh, what's his um, attitude like and what's his mentality like if we do, do this? Like, you know, and that's not just, you know, private soldiers. That's everyone, OC and, you know, uh, first sergeant or, you know, platoon sergeant especially. Um how was how that experience of, you know, because I'm sure, I know it happens to everyone, you know, that, that first couple of weeks and was there any funnies pulled on you or did you feel that you were being, you know, judged or tested? 
You know, I don't. I honestly don't remember too much from like the first couple of weeks. But uh, one of the places that I, I tried to like set myself up was I've always been pretty physically fit, and so I was like, okay, one one place I know I can just like set the stage for my guys is in PT, and like I'm gonna go out there and. I'm not going to try and be the strongest guy. I'm not going to try and be the fastest guy, but I want to be like right behind the fastest guy and maybe, you know, lifting 10% less or whatever than the strongest guy or whatever. Right. I wanted to show everyone that like, Hey, I, I may be, you know, a silver spoon officer who, uh, you know, had everything handed to him in life, but I'm, I'm not going to bitch out on you and you can rely on me to, to, to be strong when you need me to be. Yeah. I think uh, we do this uh, type of PT called battle PT and it's essentially just like log runs and uh, you know yeah, carrying yeah. jerry cans and ammo containers and stuff like that and like as a as a leader like I always found that that was the best way to to gain that um, respect from the guys like if you're up the front on the log you know and you can get some guy who's changing on a log and they just take a handle and they just you know bimble alongside it not really produce much to, to the effort. But if you, as a leader, if you get on the log at the front while guys are absolutely hanging out and you just fucking rip it, you know, you just, even though it might, it might end you, but if you just rip it for that 10 seconds, the guys will feel, you know, that burst of energy, you know, it's a physical burst of energy from you and they, they'll feel it throughout the log or whatever, the stretcher or, you know, the gun or whatever you're carrying and they'll feel it. And then, you know, guys will just talk amongst themselves afterwards. It's like, oh, you know, fucking Davey came on the log and he just like, you know, I couldn't believe it. Like, he just picked the pace up. Like, I couldn't even keep up. Yeah, and it's yeah. just like a little, tiny little things like that, like leading from the front um, is you know, massive, massive to um, infantry leadership. Yeah. And like, you could be, you could be terrible at like paperwork and stuff like that. Um, but if you want to lead, lead a, if you want your platoon to be all singing, all dancing and working for you, then that leading from the front mentality, like you just described is, is invaluable. Um, people really respond to it. And like so much of that type of PT, especially the, the battle TT that you're talking about is it's like testing those moments of weakness because like you're, you're going to get tired at some point, you know, the stretcher is going to get heavy. The jerry can is going to get too heavy, whatever it is. And it's at that moment of like, this really sucks where people are going to look at you and say, okay, is he going to quit? Because if he quits on the stretcher now, or if he quits on the jerry can or the buddy carry or whatever it is, then I don't have confidence that he's going to not quit when there's bullets flying at us and mortars are dropping and like shit's getting really bad versus, you know, just running around on base right now. Yeah. <clears throat> what was, uh, what was the, the unit that you uh, ended up going to? Uh, so I went to the 82nd Airborne to start off. All right. So you've got a bunch of history there um, at the 82nd, right? Yeah, yeah. Lots of it's a very, very proud unit. Lots of good history there. Yeah, um, I had the guy um, Eric Eric Gobin, His name is. He's in the 101st. He just gave like a quick, uh, a brief run through of like some of the history that they'd been part of, um, and like if you've ever watched Band of Brothers and stuff like that. Um, he was like, yeah, that's that, that's that unit, and you know, I don't, I don't, I don't really put it together before we're setting the the podcast up. But um, you know, as he was talking about it, and he, he brought that up, I was like, damn, that's fucking, that's pretty sweet. But the eighty second, they've got some good history as well. Like, do you mind just um, off the top of your head, just 
Um, if you can, just go for it. <laughs> yeah, sure. So, I mean, I, most people are probably familiar with the story of Band of Brothers and 101st and everything. Actually, coincidentally, I just did a, a podcast with a guy who's uh, now going to be, he's in school to be a dentist. But when he was in the army, he was actually the commander of Easy Company. So like the same company that was portrayed yeah. in Band of Brothers. Um, so he was talking about, he had all kinds of pressure on him because people uh, were like, it's still, you know, looked at as like this important company, yeah. right? right? Because it's, it's got a lot of lineage to it. Um, but yeah, a lot of the same operations, the 82nd was, was in the same thing, you know? Um, so actually the, the regiment that I was in, the 505th, uh, we were the only ones to do all four combat jumps uh, in Europe in World War II. So like a lot of our, our big events were, were in World War II. Yeah, uh, and then kind of fast forwarding again like my brigade was the only one my regiment was the only one to go to to vietnam it was kind of like a, a last minute uh, emergency call during the uh, the tet offensive where like they just needed a sudden plussing up of troops and so my regiment got sent in for that and then some of like the the big missions in like the the 60s and 70s and 80s grenada panama um we all got sent to those yeah i mean like an absolute abundance of history that um in the uk you know it's a, it's a much much older army um and you know ours our history goes back you know in some regiments 350 years um yeah. but obviously us is a different beast um such a such a new country and i i, I know there's um older uh, the us army how old is the us army it's like 200 years old or something like that right yeah something like that yeah it's crazy it's crazy to think they were running about back in the day just literally with knives and swords and just gunning people. <laughs> I, can't, I seriously cannot even imagine warfare like that. It, and they wouldn't, they wouldn't run about like crazy. They'd just stand in a skirmish line and just walk forward, you know, with the yeah. gentleman's uh, the gentleman's agreement that no one's going to break yeah. rank and they just walk yeah. up to each other. What's, what's even crazier is like two giant armies would come up, they would stop, and then some guys would like ride on horses and be like, all right, we're going to do this, right? <laughs> And they're like, yeah, fuck it, man, let's do it. And then they just go back and they're like, all right, guys, let's go. And you just run at each other. Like, that's fucking bonkers. It's insane like, to think that that used to happen. Um, yeah. Absolutely crazy. But um, so you're, what, was the, what was it? your unit up to at that time when you got there? How was the, the ops tempo? Yeah, so when I first showed up to my platoon, they had just come back from Afghanistan. It was a pretty uh, – um, pretty unique mission. So what they had did was uh, basically like our, the 82nd rotates the regiments through what's called the global response force. So you get put onto like a, uh, you have to be ready to go anywhere within 18 hours is, is the idea, right? Yeah. And uh, a new mission set was going on in Afghanistan. And so my battalion got sent there and they were divvied up amongst different special forces teams and SEAL platoons and everything. And so you had, in some cases, you know, I had two privates in my platoon who just got sent to a special forces team by themselves. And they were just like two junior infantrymen there to plus up some special forces guys. I bet they came back with some big old balls. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there, was, uh, th there was definitely some, some leadership reconfiguring when we came back because people had, had gotten exposed to – different you know operating procedures and different ways of of doing things um, and now they kind of had to get back into like the the quote-unquote regular army and get yeah. used to how we did things there um 
And so what, was, what was their primarily, primary, primary, primary role then? Was it a supporting group or was it uh, just to bolster up numbers? Uh, it, it kind of varied from, from like group to group. So sometimes, yeah, it was, you know, basically like the, the broader picture of what was happening was these special ops teams were getting sent out into what's called uh, village stability operations. So they get sent into like really remote areas of Afghanistan to tie in with a local village somewhere. And, you know, a 12 man special forces team just doesn't have the numbers to secure a fire base and, um, you know, run patrols and everything. So like they yeah. just need extra guns. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so they weren't uh, located in one specific area throughout Afghanistan. They were kind of all over. It really was all over. Yeah, that's awesome for them. Like, a massive wealth of experience to begin from that. And as a, you know, just a regular infantry bloke, that's, you know, I couldn't think of anything better. Um, what, is, what year was that? Sorry, if you don't mind. Yeah, so that was, uh, I think that deployment for them was 2011. Yeah. Right, so it's still pretty tasty in 2011. Yeah. 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 Um, and so you inherit a bunch of these guys coming back. Was it, you know, a bunch of war stories and, oh, you weren't there, man? Or was it, were you guys pretty humble about it? You guys were, were fairly humble about it. Um, I mean, the biggest place that I had to prove myself as like a junior officer was, especially with the NCOs, because um, now they, just, they had a, a wealth of experience. And I had to show them that I know what I'm doing. Um, I don't know everything. I definitely don't know everything. But, uh, you can work with me and I'm not going to fuck it up for you. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and then do you, because I know the ops tempo in the, in the US is a much, much uh, faster rate than it is in the UK. Like, do you get any orders, um, you know, giving yourself a, like an outlook for the next year or two? Um, how does it look when, you, when you're looking at that schedule sort of thing? Yeah. So when I showed up, um, my first three years in the 82nd, we were put back onto the, the global response force. So we would like rotate through gearing up, um, basically to be, to be ready to deploy at any point. And then we would go through, I don't know, a couple of months where it was more or less just kind of like a very steady state because we had to be ready to go somewhere. Yeah. And, and then it would shift and like the next regiment would be preparing to take that over. And we kind of fit into more of like a support function. Um, and we kind of just did that for about three years. Yeah. Whereabouts the whereabouts are you based? At Fort Bragg, North Carolina is where it was. How's that to live there? Well, you know, I'm I'm sure it's probably the same for for bases in the UK. Um, but army bases in the US are usually put into the the armpit areas of America, right? Because <laughs> no the land's cheap, we need a shit ton of it, and no one wants to live around artillery and machine gun fire. So military towns are not known for being the uh, the cultural hotspots of the United States, um, but you know I, I spent a lot of time outside Fort Bragg, and after a while like it it became my home right, and people talk shit about it. I'm like hey hey man calm down like that's that's where I live man that's 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 who I am yeah and you know that having that military community was 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 cool and it's a very military oriented town. <clears throat> you still live there now? Uh, no no. Uh, actually just moved to Charlottesville, Virginia a couple weeks ago. All right. <clears throat> yeah, like those uh, military towns in the UK are very similar as well. We call them, we call them garrisons. Yeah. Uh, basically, you've got maybe, let's say, two or three infantry units there with a bunch of supporting units as well. 
um, and they're yeah in the middle of nowhere, and you know, you know, not much going on around them. Um, but in London, for instance, they've got a bunch of uh, historical gar- uh, barracks. You know, that have yeah. just been here for forever. Um, and right now, they they basically just hold up the uh, ceremonial ceremonial regiments, yeah, uh, yeah. the guards division and stuff like that to you know man Buckingham Palace and you know do all that sort of stuff. Um, but yeah, everywhere else, pretty much where I was based, I was based in Fort George Inverness, which is in the the top of the Highlands of Scotland. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. and it's uh, it's like covered on three sides by the ocean. Um, so if you can imagine that area in 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 the midwinter of Scotland, it's it's dark, it's fucking howling rain nonstop, it's extremely windy, um, and it's just you know the it's a fort. So it's like it was built like three hundred something years ago, yeah. and not much upgrade has been done to it. So yeah. that's what the living conditions were like for me for ten years. Um, yeah. And Inverness and the Highlands has got zero. I mean, nothing going for it. There's, you know, there's nothing to do up there. You have to drive three hours to to find civilization. Yeah, yeah. But that's just how it is, I guess. Um, Did you have any um, career aspirations other than, you know, stay in the infantry officer route or? um... So uh, I did my four years in the infantry and then I went to a, a smaller function called civil affairs. And so basically like we fall underneath the, uh, the special operations umbrella. Like we're, uh, it's, it's one regiment out of like the whole, the whole op, uh, soft community. And essentially what we do is we would go into other countries. It was much more of like a, a diplomatic type role. So we would go somewhere. Um, and usually we, this was all like, you know, we're working with local mayors, local government officials, NGOs, uh, the state department, to try and like identify problems in countries before they became bigger problems. And then like work with, um, work with relief organizations and to try and come up with programs to address those before they became larger security concerns. Are you, are you able to disclose what countries you are, you're in or, um, is it, you know, off, off limits? Uh, yeah. So I was in, um, Syria and then, uh, somewhere else in the Middle East as well. Right. Okay. Um, <clears throat> Uh, what what sort of time frame is that in terms of um, you know what was going on around that, that time yeah. in Syria? So I got to Syria June 2017. So at this time, um, if you remember the city of Raqqa, yeah, like that, yeah, yeah. So that was the the capital of ISIS at the time. So I was there for like the six months leading up to the liberation of Raqqa from ISIS. So it was really it was a really cool time to be there because it was you know the entire offensive to retake the city and I got to be there you know when the city was liberated and like go to liberation parties and everything Uh, (laughs) yeah that sounds insane and I imagine that that civil affairs uh that civil affairs role you know to most it might sound a bit boring you know um a bit dorky but I can imagine like being in being in that uh soft environment and the exposure you get to civil civil civilian population um is something that you're not going to get in a regular like infantry battalion if you're like doing the civil affairs you know the detachment in a regular battalion like you're going to be able to go much deeper get much better assets and you know work off um you know essentially just higher and you know better quality you know 
guys on the ground, um, locals, local nationals. Was that the case for you? Yeah, yeah. And what was really cool too was, you know, we were very small teams. So, you know, I went from a 40-man infantry platoon to a four-man civil affairs team. And so my, my NCOs had a ton of responsibility. Um, you know, not on the Syria deployment, but on the next one, you know, I had a, a staff sergeant who, if I couldn't be there for the meeting, would often be advising a two-star general on how to do, like, coordinate with the, the United Nations, right? And he's just, <laughs> yeah, I, that sounds fucking crazy. I know. It but, like, does, man. That's the kind of like trust that we, that we had in these guys because they were um, one, they kind of just like had to do it, but you know, there was a pretty thorough assessment and selection process to get there for them too. Yeah. And was that something that was volunteered um, by yourself or was that a position that you just, you ended up in? It, yeah. It's, it's a volunteer thing. <clears throat> Is it something that's highly sought after or just a, a niche, a niche uh, role? It's, it's, it's pretty sought after. Um, yeah. So like the, the, way, the way it works for officers is we would apply to, to those three branches of Army Special Operations. You have Special Forces, Civil Affairs, and Psychological Operations. And basically you put in like one application for all three, and then the Army decides which one you're going to go to. Yeah. Um, but they're usually pretty competitive roles. Uh, there's usually lots of access, you know, especially like the, the enlisted guys, they see that they have the opportunity to – get a lot more trust, have a lot more um, freedom of movement in their career and, you know, get a lot more responsibility. So they definitely want to go after it. Uh, you like know you're going to deploy. That was a huge reason for me to, to want to do it. Like I knew, you know, when I got to my civil affairs battalion at the time, we were the most deployed unit in the army because our, our area of operations was the middle East. And so we were just like back and forth all the time. Um, so, you know, you're going to deploy. And so, that's a huge incentive to people to want to go there because they just want to get after it. Yeah. What's the, what's the sort of selection process for that then? Is it literally just a, a board or is it, is there like a, you know, physical and, you know, arduous testing process before you even can um, get to that unit? Yeah. Um, so it was, it's a, it's a 10 day selection process and in there, there's some physical aspects. There's some, uh, some interview type aspects and there's a lot of, they very much want people who are flexible and like culturally adaptive. You know, there, there might've been a day in Syria where I'd have to brief a special forces colonel about why me talking to, you know, the civil council is important to his mission of killing ISIS. And then I have to go and talk to, you know, the local mayor of a city. And then I have to go talk to like the state department somewhere um, and each one of those groups is going to acquire like a totally different approach. So they very much want people who are very flexible and adaptive. And so a lot of that just involved them throwing some like kind of weird shit at us and just seeing how you react to it. Yeah. What, what sort of scenarios and, um, and experiences were you getting on the ground in Syria? Um, because that's peak, peak, peak ISIS time. So I can imagine there's a bunch of soft units from all over the world uh, operating in that, that area at the time, never mind the rest of Middle East, um, you know, armies all clashing in around that area as well. Like, it's just an absolute mishmash and shithole of, of <laughs> units and forces from all over coming yeah. together. Were, were, you, were you seeing the foreign fighters? Were you experiencing, you know, just talk about what, you, what sort of things you were experiencing. Yeah, so Syria was really, really weird because 
you know, when we think of Iraq or Afghanistan, we think of like, there's no such thing as like a front line, right? Everywhere is the battle space. In Syria, there kind of really was like a line of troops. It almost seems like, like a World War I thing. It was strange. But there very much was like a line. And behind that line is the coalition forces. And in front of that line is ISIS. And the, the threat behind the line was, was pretty low. Um, so like my small team, you know, I had a four-man team. I had a 19-year-old Kurdish kid who drove around with me and like a 70-year-old interpreter. And the six of us, I mean, drove around all, east, all around northeastern Syria meeting with different council members and, uh, uh, you know, groups and everything. That's pretty cool. How, how much um, interaction were you having with, um, um, what do you call them? The SDF? No, the, um, so guys who would like set up meetings and stuff for, for you. How, how are you coming about that? You're talking about like, like meeting with local Syrians and everything? Yeah, like I'm sure you'd have to have someone that would set that meeting up for you. Like how are you coming about getting these meetings? Yeah, so we, uh, we had like a political connector and I could make a request to him to say, I want to meet with this person. And then he would behind the scenes make it happen for me. Yeah, that's awesome. <clears throat> would, would you say that the guys who are working under you in terms of like the enlisted guys, they, they come back to uh, a regular unit and just carry on or were they then trying to take more steps to stay in the, the soft unit? Soft yeah, units? So like, once they entered into civil affairs, like that's, that's their new job. It's not right, like they okay. were back out, so like they're, they're there permanently. All right, okay, yeah. That makes you know, more sense. Because um, I'm imagining a guy who who's been doing that for you know let's say a year on, on deployment and then going back to his regular oh, infantry yeah. unit, he's like, that's nah, I'm, I'm going yeah. somewhere else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I've had the good life for too long. Yeah. Um, something I uh, I wanted to ask as well because in the U in the UK we've <clears throat> we've kind of taken on the the aftermath of you know. Navy SEALs becoming more popular and, you know, them doing a lot more books and interviews and now there's everyone that's on YouTube and on podcasts and, you know, everyone, they're all Navy SEALs. Everyone's a Navy SEAL. Everybody. And now in the UK, we've got, you know, we've got a good amount of guys who are coming out uh, that have been ex-SAS, uh, which is something that previously hasn't been done. Um, but one thing I have noticed that, that, is that you don't get a, a Delta guy coming out. Like, there may be one or two that's, that's out there talking about, but um, how much talk is there between guys at, at, at regular units about going to do their selection? Is it something that's widely talked about or is it something that's just still kind of, you know, a far-flung um, dream sort of thing for, for a couple of guys? Are you talking about, like, uh, what's it like to find out about going to something like Delta Selection? I'm talking, like, um, like... I imagine in the U.S. that you've got more guys that would be leaving the army to then go to basic uh, navy, basic navy boot camp or whatever, and then try buds than you would have going to Delta. Uh, I, actually, I, I don't know anyone that's done that. I don't know anyone that's tried to leave the army to you know go get the go become a SEAL. Um, yeah, there. I don't know exactly like what has created that dynamic of SEALs, you know, creating their whole brand and everything. Um, but yeah, it, it's interesting to see that it's not, it hasn't quite happened on the same level from the army. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a, a good thing. I think that the, that Delta don't get any recognition, you know, 
I mean, I'm sure in in official in official uh, avenues they're getting the recognition that they deserve when it when it's uh, you know when it's warranted. But in public eye, I, I think it's a it's a net benefit that they're just kept quiet and you know no one's really talking about them. Um, but are people in units, you know, from your own personal experience, like the guys that you had under you, are they? Is it an option for them? Do, do they feel like that's something that they could uh, get to, or <clears throat> would you say that it's necessarily just guys who are already SF then taking the step up? Yeah, so uh, at least within like, the civil affairs world, it, not too many people want to go that route. It's just kind of like a different personality of individual. Uh, but yeah, there's there's a good number of special forces guys that I know that, that want to go into Delta. And actually, uh, predominantly a lot of Delta operators come from Ranger Regiment, which is you know, everyone in Ranger Regiment is an infantryman. But yeah. that's where they get a lot of their guys is from is from there. Yeah, we kind of have the same thing. Like um, for whatever reason, the the parachute regiment in the UK get they provide a lot of soldiers to to the SES. Uh, yeah. You know, I think it's just a historical thing, and they they tend to recruit. I don't want to, uh, you know, I don't want to. They tend to recruit guys who are, you know, peak peak performance and uh, high level athletes, whereas. The other regular army kind of just <clears throat> um, don't recruit as well. I would say myself included. Like I, you know, I'm just a regular Joe. I'm no high level athlete, but um, the the parachute regiment do a good job of recruiting good guys, um, which end up, you know, then going and doing uh, SF selection and and providing the bulk of the the numbers to the, the SAS. Um, how did you end up at, um, finishing your career then? Like what was the what was the motivation then? It was a number of things. Um, four major relationships as an adult. Every one of them ended around a deployment or a military, <laughs> <movement>. <laughs> which I'm sure a lot of people could probably resonate with. I'm sure, yeah, yeah. And at some point, I was like, you know, if I, I was feeling the the drain of that and like the difficulty in in maintaining relationships, and I didn't see it getting any better. Um, staying in my career. So like, that was definitely a factor. And then, you know, after I kind of got done doing all the fun stuff of, you know, being a chief platoon leader and being a civil affairs team leader, I was looking like the, the next jobs and they just didn't excite me nearly as much. You know, I'm sure it's kind of the same thing. Like you're going to get pushed into more staff type roles. And, um, and then I tie that in with two, you know, I was kind of feeling this entrepreneurial itch. And I was like, okay, I've got to scratch this at some point in time. Um, and it's not going to happen while I'm in the military. So I want to try and take advantage of this, you know, while I'm young and I can. Yeah. Did you know what that itch was? Um, <clears throat> or was it something that you just knew was there? I just knew it was there. It, it wasn't like, you know, a particular idea or anything. Uh, and like right now it's, you know, it's coalescing into the blog and the podcast. But, um, you know, I'm just in the process of starting business school right now. And my plan is to try and start a company while I'm here. Company that um, has the same the same background, yeah, like off of your blog and your website and podcast and stuff. Something totally different, actually. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. that's awesome. Yeah, um, yeah I, still, I still plan on doing the blog and podcast. And um, one, I just enjoy it, and it's a it's a really great way to stay connected with the the veteran community, even you know across oceans and everything. Um, so I'm definitely going to continue to do that. But my my idea is totally separate. Yeah, that will, that's good. Um, I, I'm kind of just doing it for a hobby. Like I have no uh, ambition to, 
and I don't think I would ever make money off of this. Um, maybe in the future, if it, it was to grow, I'd, you know, it makes maybe, you know, some money, but that's not my ambition. My, my ambition yeah. is just to, like you said, stay connected with people that I don't know. Um, and, you know, my real reason for starting it was to highlight people's personal experiences because I know they're so valuable. Um, and the more I could get people to talk about them and get them to express themselves on on a you know let's say a long form discussion, the more that uh, I could maybe get the word out more that these guys have got a lot to offer people you know in the civilian world and even you know still within the army if you know if they're still serving. <clears throat> and I, I think infantry guys just get a bad rap, um, you know, because they don't they don't necessarily gain any technical or um, you know, I mean, they, they gain skills in the army, but they're not, you know, hard skills like a, a kind of an engineering skill or an aviation mechanic skill, you know, something yeah. like that. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're good with a bayonet and a 240 or, you know, a rifle, but, you know, it doesn't, <laughs> doesn't translate into civilian yeah. world again. You know, I, I would always kind of joke with my guys and say, uh, an infantryman can do anything. And part of that is just like, one, if usually if you put enough duct tape or beat it hard enough, it'll it'll work somehow, and we're really good at that. But it's also just like that that attitude and confidence that comes with having served in the combat arms. Of I can figure this out, and it's tough, and I can get through it. And infantrymen have that quality in spades. Like we just we know we're going to get through it, and we know. Like we're going to focus on a mission and we're going to break it down and we're going to go after it until we get what we want. Yeah. I mean, my, my personal experience of um, <clears throat> being around the army while I was in and now while I'm out is that support arms generally are more aligned to civilians. Uh, whereas infantry guys are, you know, a completely different beast. Like there's a guy I'm working with and, you know, there's two guys, two guys I'm working with. They're both ex-infantry. Uh, and we're working with an, another civilian guy. And the civilian guy is extremely uh, micromanaging and he has a little bit of power and it, and it kind of goes to his head a little bit too too often. Uh, me, myself and the other guy, he'll come up and tell us, you know, the other infantry guy, he'll come up and tell us, oh, look at this, we need to fix this and look at that, we need to do that and this guy's not doing this. And, you know, our, our, um, our MO is, look, just let the guys do, the, do their work. Like, yeah he might not be doing it perfect but if we just the mo if we just constantly harass him and just tell him he's doing a bad job he's going to do a bad job if we watch and learn what he's doing wrong for a, a bunch of period of time then we can just give him one piece of criticism and then that will then you know trigger a a, a switch in his brain to then think about something different and then you know change his uh his actions and then that's the way that you you affect change but the guy just can't the, the guy just can't get his head around it and what the you know coming full circle the point i'm getting at is that you know guys infantry guys are really just m more mellow when it comes to like problem solving you know nothing's a problem you know anything you throw at an infantry guy it's just not a problem like what's the solution Let, uh, let's just work out a solution yeah, uh, yeah yeah it's not you know there's no point in raising the blood pressure about such menial things um and that's maybe a good thing for society as well like if you could um get people to experience more hardship and more you know you know it's, it's not going to happen but if, if people were to experience more hardship um in their lives and because i've always thought that hardship builds character builds good character um 
and and you know like people just losing their minds over such menial things right now in society is like I can see it and it frustrates me because I I, I don't I don't get uptight about anything really yeah uh, because I've had such hard such a hard uh, you know career and experiences that you know nothing really gets to me there's nothing that can really bother me that much yeah um, would you agree you with that hundred percent like you got you got to go through those tough times to get that perspective. And yeah, I mean, I, I see it all the time with, with friends and family of you're freaking out about this. Like, okay, is anybody going to die? Is anyone going to lose a limb or their eyes or anything? No. So like we can, we can figure something out to this. You know, we can, we can figure out a way to like mitigate the risks and solve this problem, but it's a solvable problem. Whatever it is, we can figure out a way to get it done. Yeah. I mean, like family, like you just touched on there, family is probably the one for me that is the, the most common um, <clears throat> that I'm having to deal with. Um, and it's literally like, look, do not get worried about this because like you just said, no one's going to die. Like, look at the grand scheme of things. Do you have a house? Do you have a car? Do you still have a lot of money coming in each month? Are you comfortable? Is the dog okay? Are you healthy? You know, all of this stuff, like you've got all of this, this, th this stuff that, makes your life so easy and like this is the one thing that's bringing your whole life crashing down like yeah come on let's let's get a, a wider let's look at things with it with a, a wider uh outlook and like part of the part of the way that i've i've put into perspective of you know going down a, a path of like trying to start something and like an entrepreneurial route is like okay absolute worst case scenario the worst thing that happens you know i'm homeless and unemployed whatever i've lived in the woods out of a rucksack for weeks at a time you know like it, it, it'll it'll be okay i'm probably not going to get to that point but worst case scenario like if that's the worst that happens that's not so bad yeah i mean you know the some of the things i'm thinking of right now is like your your credit score my credit scores went down four points i'm like no why would you even care why are you even checking it yeah. Oh, we get better rate on our, on our mortgage or our interest. Like, well, if we're not looking for a mortgage, it doesn't make it doesn't make a difference. Yeah. yeah <laughs> and the, the difference in that, you know, percentage point or half percentage point, it's like five bucks a month is, is you know, and now you're yeah. worried about it. <laughs> um, so how are you spending your day now? Uh, so right now, actually, I'm in like the, we have like orientation and, and classes and everything to, to start before school actually starts in two weeks. And so that's kind of what's going on. And then, so I do that in the morning and then um, working on the blog and the podcast in the afternoon is typically how things are going right now. Yeah. And uh, so starting school in two weeks, you said, how is that going to work with that? Uh, do you have COVID restrictions on that or? Um, yeah. Yeah. Big time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's going to, it's going to be a, a hybrid thing what we're doing. So it's like um, going to be mostly online and then we'll have some in-person classes, but you know, with all kinds of restrictions of, you have to like, we have to get tested before we're out on a campus. Uh, there's like an app we have to use before we go to class to like, you know, check our health. Um, you got to wear a mask when you're on campus. Yeah. There's, there's all kinds of restrictions in place. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, it's fucking madness right now. It's fucking madness. Yeah. It's fucking crazy. I, I just can't believe it. Uh, it's, it's actually came to this and it's, you know, it's brought the world to its knees. Um, but that's a, that's for another day, I guess. Um, and are you looking forward to starting education again? Yeah, yeah, I really am. Um, you know, part of the reason that I, I wanted to go back to school was 
you know, it, it was funny, like when I was writing my, my applications for school, uh, my first like couple of drafts, I put in that, yeah, like I kind of want to go back to school because it's going to be a break after the military. And, you know, other veterans were, were reading my application and they're like, all right, man, you're, you're right, but you can't say that. Okay. <laughs> so I had to like tweak it up a little bit. Um, and it, it's going to be hard in its own route, but just like we talked about, it's, it's, it's hard in perspective, right? Yeah, it's a non-issue. Yeah. So like I wanted a little bit of like a buffer period between leaving the, the institution and heading back out into the wild. And how long is that going to take you then? It's, uh, two years. So it's a two year uh, <clears throat> uh, degree. Yeah. 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 That's awesome. Um, what are some of the resources that, that guys can look at um, if they want to get into education post-career? Yeah, so um, a couple of the really good ones for, uh, so like the main one in the United States is called Service to School. And so they pair you up with a, a mentor who kind of guides you through the application process. Um, and then actually just recently, I connected with a, a couple of enlisted Marines and they're all starting at like Ivy League schools in the U.S. this fall. Um, and so they've started a nonprofit called Next Step Inbound and with the sole purpose of trying to get, you know, former enlisted guys into top universities. And they're, they're doing a really great job right now. That's awesome. Yeah. Is, there a, is there a bunch of, um, you know, people like yourself out there doing this stuff or have you found a niche? Uh, th there's a few other people, but um, I like to think that I'm separating myself from the pack a little bit. But uh, yeah, there, there's a few other people doing it, but there, there's not a whole lot. Yeah, I'm kind of the same with the podcast. I started it and you know, done zero due diligence and then found out there's one other guy who's doing something very similar. Um, and then there's another guy who's doing something a little, a little more, a little more um, broad, broad spectrum with these guests and stuff like that. But yeah. there's really not not that many that, that are doing it. And um, I'm trying to target mine to be infantry specific, but like a, have an international audience. Um, so I'm hoping that that you know that really kicks off. Um, and I'm sure if we just get keep getting you know quality guys on one after the other, then it it, it will eventually take off. Um, I was listening to the what are the what are the short little segments you do in your podcast called oh so those are the uh, i call them resources of the week yeah, yeah i was listening to those there and the one that the one that you had on there with the american corporate partners and uh veterati that was yeah. uh, that was really interesting that that you know that there's people out there that are <clears throat> giving themselves um are they, are they are they paid or is it no no it's all yeah. volunteers yeah, yeah, so they're so they're volunteering their their services to to help veterans. Um, could you just maybe just talk about what what those two things they're doing? Because I I found it was you know really useful, and that I'm going to have to I'm actually going to look into whether something like that is going on in the UK. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I did find it really useful. Yeah, so they're uh, they're two very similar organizations, and like what they do in that they are focused on connecting veterans with mentorship. Uh, they kind of differ in how they do it a little bit, which I'll, I'll get into here too in a second. But the whole point being is these are people who just volunteer their time to help a vet. Um, I think both of them also are open to military spouses as well. You know, find the next job and like transition out and, you know, go on to the next chapter after the military. And so the way uh, I kind of get like the separation of how the two works. So American Corporate Partners, they 
try and link you in with a mentor for a longer period of time. So they go through it a little bit higher diligence process and talking to you about what it is you want to do, what you're interested in. And then they find someone within their volunteer pool who is, you know, matched along with that path. And then they pair you two so that you can like build a long-term relationship together. And then Veterati, um, it takes a different approach. You can like go into their platform and you can like pick and choose who you want to talk to. And then you just like click on someone, you schedule a time and then you have a conversation with them and you can either stop right then or, you know, continue talking to that person at another time. But it's, it's a good way you can go, you, you yourself can go through and find someone like, Hey, I'm not totally sure what I'm interested in, but this guy's got a couple of, you know, bits of his background that mesh with what I think I might want to do. Let me just call him and uh, talk to him about that a little bit. Yeah, I think it's a really amazing thing, especially the, the longer um, mentorship that uh, American corporate partners are, are doing because most people who, who, let's say, you want to get out and you want to get into the security industry, for example, if you're getting out, you do a little bit of research or you think you do enough research to, to have a good understanding of the security industry and how that's, that's uh, going to uh, lay out for you. But really... That's not the case. You, you don't know anything, really. If you're just doing your own research, you don't know anything. And having yeah. a mentor, like, I, I now have a mentor after working with him, um, after getting on a task and working with him, uh, and he's just, you know, he's feeding me so much information that I had no idea about. I mean, I thought I, I never thought I knew everything, but I thought I had a good grasp of things. Uh, and the more and more that I, I hear from him, the more and more I understand how the, the industry works and how you're bet most likely to get jobs. And, you know, it's, it's, it doesn't, it's not necessarily, um, and I'm pretty sure this is, this could probably go further, further afield. And you can maybe tell me if I'm right or wrong, but it's not necessarily how good you are. It's who you know, because that connection is going to pass you on to a recruiter, a company, and then they're going to look at your CV and then, you know, take the time because you've been referred to them rather than look at your CV and think, oh yeah, this guy's, you know, got a bit of experience, but, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to shove them to the bottom of the pile because I've had referrals from other, uh, other colleagues. Uh, so it's not necessarily who you know or how, uh, sorry, it's not necessarily how good you are at your job or how good you think you are at your job. It might be who you know uh, and the, the, the ways that a mentor can help us either by getting you these people or getting you those feet, feet in the door or giving you the best guidance to, 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 um, to get to the person that you need to be talking to. Um, you know, I, I found that having a mentor has been brilliant um, and it's been really successful for me personally. Um, but yeah, like I would say to anyone right now who's, who's listening, who is getting out of the army is that um, try and find somebody, even if it's an ex-colleague, you know, that's, you know, working in the field that you want to get into and just get in touch with them and try and build a relationship with them, even if it's someone that you don't know. Um, and just, you know, they might have somebody that they could direct you onto that might be a better um resource for you but definitely having a mentor is uh, extremely valuable i find yeah for sure and i you know i know when you're in the military it's it's easier to reach out to someone because like you're in the same organization you know if you're a, a junior enlisted guy you can and you're struggling with a, a career problem or something like that's what your platoon sergeant is there for that's what your squad leader is there for that's what your first sergeant's there for um and then when you're leaving though that that same support structure isn't there it's so like you have to figure it out yourself. Uh, but the, the opportunity there is like it opens up 
everything. And I know I've, I have yet to be turned down from reaching out to someone and being like, Hey, can we talk for a little bit? I'd yeah. love to know what you do. No one has ever told me no. So I yes. strongly That's incredible. Yeah. <clears throat> and another another thing I found as well is that if you could offer someone value, even if it's like um, I don't know, you just message them and you you figure out a way that you could give them some value. Like you know, I can't think of an example off my head um, right now, but if you were to get in contact and you could think, think, you know, let's say you're let's say you're a videographer and you um, or you're interested in doing vi- video and you want to you know get in get in touch with a, a company that are doing you know work that you want to you can say hey look I, I really like what you're doing here um how about i come and do a video for you for free like i'll offer you my services for for free or even at a, a discounted rate um and if you like it then I, I really like to discuss possibilities of working with you or possibilities of you know um uh, doing some extra contracting for you or you know simple things like that and then you know if you provide good content and good value to them then that's a, that's another way that you can get seen in the um and that you know because that you know in, in your industry if it's you're re- really competitive by yeah. providing value to someone that others might not be doing you know that's a good technique where you can get your your foot in the door <clears throat> and get yourself noticed yeah and and even if you don't know exactly like what that that value is going to be um i tell you you can reach out to someone and just try and make the the the, the point of contact like as easy as possible for them you know, if you ask, hey, can I just get 15 or 20 minutes of your time? And you may not, you know, necessarily have something of direct value. It's a pretty small ask for someone to talk to you for 15 minutes. So they're most likely going to do that. Again, I've reached out to people. I've had nothing to offer at the beginning. All I've asked for is, you know, a little bit of their time. And they're willing to do that. Yeah. Um, maybe just touching back on that last bit of um, adding value. If you're getting out of the army, you've got terminal leave that you can take while you're still getting paid. If you if you know what job you want to do, you can reach out to a company and say, hey, look, I'll come and work at your company for free for a month. And if you like me, how about you hire me? Um, like that there is such a simple tactic and you're not losing any money because you're, you know, you're, you're still being paid by the army. Um, it's a good way, to, good way to take advantage of your, of your terminal leave, I, I thought. I, I know a Marine who did that exact same thing. Of, he really wanted to work in this company. Uh, he actually went, he was stationed in Hawaii, so like a pretty nice place to live, right? Yeah. To stay there after the Marine Corps. Um, and there was a company he really wanted to work for. And so he sent in a couple applications and never heard anything back. Then he started sending emails and like never heard anything back. <laughs> well, then he found out that the CEO was going to be speaking to this event and was like, fuck it, I'm just going to go. And so he goes to this event, goes up to the CEO and says, hey, I've been you know, sending you emails and applications for months. I want to work for you for free for a couple of months because I'm on terminal leave and I can. And they were like, can you fucking start tomorrow? Great. Exactly. Yeah. And I'm sure you're still working there now. Yeah. 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 It's amazing. Um, it was someone when I was leaving, it was saying, oh yeah, you can maybe reach out to an employer and they, you know, work for free. And when, when I, when I heard that, I was like, work for free. I was like, fuck that. I'm not doing that. And then it took a minute to really, click i'm like i'm well i'm getting paid by the army so i'm not really working for free but i'm, I'm offering someone value and you know you know you're betting on yourself you're betting that you're going to do a good job for them yeah um <clears throat> what about the uh the vet to ceo episode as well because i listened to that and you know they were mentioned about the 
the opportunities that buying a business is might um might help might be able to help uh veterans um because i, I i've never heard of anyone doing that before you know buying yeah, a business yeah. you know with you know necessarily not much much cash and you're you're describing how that works yeah it sounds fucking crazy doesn't it you don't yeah. think like I, before i took that class i never considered buying a business because i was like i don't have you know five million dollars i don't have money yeah yeah right um but it basically the the down and dirty of the model is like there's businesses out there where the owner of the business they want to leave for whatever reason you know they want to retire they want to go do something else whatever and so they're looking for someone to take over the business and to a lot of them um you know, having a veteran come in, like a, a young person who um, who is disciplined, who is mission-oriented, who has leadership experience, like you have all the soft skills. They're like, okay, great. I can, I can work with you and teach you how to run this business because I know you have all the intangibles and I can teach you this. And typically the way the, like, the, the financing of it works, um, so you can do stuff like take out, a, take out a bank loan to pay a portion of it or raise money from investors uh, but a popular route is what's called seller financing. So essentially you're like taking out a loan from the person who owns the business. All right. So you start working and running the business and they still kind of like maintain a foot in the door and there to like mentor you a little bit. Meanwhile, they're now like getting recurring revenue from you paying them back for the business. So it's a win-win for everyone really. It really is. <clears throat> and what sort of businesses are you looking at? I, I'm imagining, you know, I'm not imagining that you're going to be taking over McDonald's, fucking hell. But, um, yeah. you know, it could be, let's say, would I be wrong to assume that you could be taking over someone's, like, you know, landscaping company, you know, something like that? Yeah, yeah th th these are going to be smaller businesses. Um, you're probably looking at something between the, like, you know, $500,000 to maybe, like, $2 million in, like, revenue every year. But, yeah, something like a landscaping business or like a, just a, a small local business are absolutely looking to do stuff like that. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah, I think I think your podcast is like extremely valuable to guys who are getting out and who and guys who are already out who you know kind of lost in the woods and but you know if you just you know if you actually like take the time to listen to what you're putting out there, it's like the content's fantastic. It's you know it's extremely valuable to people who who might be a little bit lost or might just need that extra little guidance or might need a might need a uh, something that's no their nose that they, they weren't aware of um another thing that i i i, uh, I could resonate with is a team team rubicon episode yeah <clears throat> i actually worked with the uh, team rubicon at a hospital during uh so obviously over here we had lockdown so you know everyone no one was working for three months or whatever because of coronavirus so i actually like was unemployed lost my job because of the coronavirus. And then during that time I was unemployed, I signed up with Team Rubicon to do some volunteer work. <clears throat> I mean, I'm not, I never had any, um, any work come from Team Rubicon, but you know, that's not to say that it's not a valuable resource to get it. I went there and volunteered two weeks of my time and I met another 20 odd veterans and they're all civilian veterans as well. You know, they're all civilians now. It's not, there's no active duty there. So a lot of them are running their own companies and, you know, you know, it might just be that contact that you bump into that, that might be able to offer you a job or there might be an, you know, a guy who knows a guy who's, you know, if you're still looking for a job, you know, that ends up working out for you that way. Uh, but 
for guys who don't know what Team Rukon is, would you mind just giving them a quick, um, you know, overview? Yeah, sure. So he was added by uh, a former Marine, and he came back and, you know, decided to get out of the military. But he saw that a lot of veterans were returning from war, but were still feeling, you know, returning from war and getting out of the military, but still feeling this need to maintain that, that brotherhood and sense of camaraderie with other veterans. And also that they wanted to continue to give back to their community. You know, there can be this, I think a lot of people struggle with the, the fear of leaving the uniform and losing that sense of like working towards a larger purpose. And so Team Rubicon tries to address that. And so what they predominantly do is organize volunteers to respond to natural disasters. That's kind of like their, their bread and butter. Uh, so, you know, say a tornado hits or a hurricane, they organize a team to go and respond to that and help people out and give something back to the local community. Uh, and they do some international missions as well, but kind of like they're doing a, a bunch with COVID and things as simple as just like making masks or um, helping run blood drives or whatever, but it's a good way to connect with other veterans and give something back to your community and like have that sense of mission and purpose again. Yeah, like the task I was doing, it was uh, eight hours a day and it was working at a hospital. I was basically, I was given accommodation, so that's, you know, a bonus. Um, and I was just driving for, you know, I was picking up COVID patients, taking the burden off of ambulances, um, you know, due to the restrictions of, you know, you know, having people in confined areas. They couldn't take multiple people to dialysis uh, treatment centres and stuff like that. Um, also, we were dealing with discharges, so people who are coming out of hospital who normally would get like a, a minibus ambulance to take them home or something like that. Yeah. Um, so we, we were just basically just taking up the, the, the flak from that. And, you know, there's a bunch of, uh, bunch of um, minivans that were put on for us and we would just, you know, get a task and come in. We'd go pick them up. We'd drop them off at the house. And it's not, it, it, it was really good for um I, such a really good sense of service you know even though i'm not actually you know serving anyone anymore um day to day but volunteering my time you know you feel that sense of service again and that's for most people who join that's that's really why you join the army you don't join the army to make loads of money or you don't you don't join the military because you want to get rich and famous you join because you you love your country or you love the people that have you know deployed or um joined the military before you and you want to you want to serve your nation you want to serve your population you want to serve your family um and like if you're a veteran you get a really really good sense of service again after working with uh, team rubicon it was actually team rubicon uk I'm, i probably should add that in there it wasn't the same one that's out in the states it's run by a different guy back here in the uk um but yeah, is there any other um, places or uh, organizations that you can think of off the top of your head that are providing that, that you might, you know, provide that sense of service back to a veteran who might, you know, might be missing that? Yeah, so uh, two in the U.S. that immediately come to mind. So one's called uh, Team Red, White, and Blue. And so they, they kind of organize around, uh, it's very much geared towards like the, the camaraderie part. So they do a lot of like organized PT, you know, if you go like do a, a road race in the United States, you'll almost always see people running in team red, white, and blue shirts. You'll see like a group of runners running together who, who are, you know, doing that as part of the team. Yeah. Uh, and they also do community service events, much like team Rubicon does. <coughs> and, um, another one is called, uh, the mission continues. 
and it's a little more organized. So you have to like, um, if you get selected into the program, they send you and you do like a fellowship for, uh, I want to say two to three months, something like that, where it's like, you have like a big project that you're trying to accomplish in your local community. And they're there to help you help provide like the logistical sport to make it happen. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, yeah, there's, there's, there's not as many in the UK, but there's a bunch of, you know, there's a bunch of resources and uh, organizations out there that are, you know, doing a, doing a lot for a bunch of people. I had a guy on the, and I, I love to give him a shout out because uh, I think what he's doing is amazing. Um, Chris Labuse, he's doing um, a non-profit organization right now called um, Storytime Project, uh, hashtag Storytime. Uh, but it's, if you go to Storytime Project, uh, dot com then you can get to his website and he's trying to he started a non-profit organization to help prevent veteran suicide uh and basically he's you know selling a bunch of t-shirts and shirts and uh mugs and all that sort of stuff and just trying to raise some money so that he can help uh veterans get this to get the help that they need or you know provide their family some support in any way just you know raise money so that there's money there to people who need it for whatever reason it may be yeah um but yeah, he's done a good thing. He's a he's a U.S. Army guy as well. Yeah, actually, just the other day I did a podcast. Um, so this is going to sound a little bit crazy when I first say it, but what this guy is doing—he's a former uh, 75th Ranger Regiment guy—and he was going through a really tough period of anxiety, and depression, and ended up going to Peru and did a ayahuasca experience. All right. Yeah. And, had huge benefits for him. Uh, and so that kind of coincides. There's like some, some significant research going on in the United States right now about the impact that psychedelic treatments can have in helping anybody suffering from anxiety or depression. But a lot of it is specific to veterans suffering with PTSD. And so what his organization called uh, the Heroic Hearts Project does is they raise money to send vets to these psychedelic experiences and it's like it's been transformative to the guys who've gone through it um okay on my on my show he talked about some like super hardcore badass dudes you know snipers from special forces marine recon you know really hard guys who had some like really bad shit that they went through and they spent a couple days doing this and it's been like life-changing for them um and it's completely rechanged like how they view the world and there was a really powerful moment when he and I were talking of, um, you know, after I think maybe it was like the second session they did this, uh, Marine recon guy came up to him and said, you know, man, before this, I had absolutely thought about committing suicide. And after this, I now realize how ridiculous that idea sounds to me. And I can't even comprehend ever thinking that ever again. And it's just been powerful. Like the experience that people have had going through this. And I know that, you know, people probably don't usually think of taking like mushrooms or ayahuasca or something as like uh, a avenue to that. But the science behind it is, is really astounding and the impact that it's had. Yeah. And I think the, the thing to, to note on that is that you can't, I mean, you can, you can take too much and you could probably have a bad, a bad, uh, a bad trip, let's say, uh, but you can't die from it. Like, I don't think yeah, it, it's, it's, uh, I don't. I don't want to say you definitely can. I don't know. <laughs> I don't really know. I'm just uh, winging that. I'm pretty sure you can't uh, die from it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, all these all the experiences that they arrange are guided. So like you have someone there to kind of take you through it, 
And they do a very thorough vetting process to make sure that like these people know what they're doing. And, um, and like the, the research that's being done in the U S predominantly out of the Johns Hopkins university, again, is like, it's pairing these experiences with psychedelic substances with, with, you know, in-person therapy with a professional and the, you know, the, the effects that they're having have just been astronomical. Yeah. And I mean, I'm all for anything that can help anyone and any walk of life that's, you know, <clears throat> that's going through a bad time. Um, I personally have, I've never actually taken any drugs, uh, willingly. Um, and I, I'm really open to the, to the idea that, you know, maybe down the line, it's, it might be something that's common pra practice. I used to, I used to be, you know, total anti-drugs and like, you know, I'm never doing it. I'm, I'll, I will never even think about it. Um, but more recently, just because of the, you know, the literature that's out there at the minute and, you know, other people and listening to other podcasts and personal experiences, I began, began to understand that maybe my original perception of drugs um, isn't what it isn't what it actually is and it, like you're saying if you've got these uh, psychedelics they can be massively helpful to people who are struggling then why the hell not and especially if they're especially if they're um, done in a supervised manner um, like I, I think it's astounding that you know marijuana and stuff like that's uh, still legal um, because you in the states you go to one state it's it's you know Denver friends uh, Colorado for instance mushroom and and weed's legal and then you go that one state next door and it's like it's you know yeah, you can't crazy. you can't even have in your car never mind take it it's like it's uh it's crazy and i just really i just really hope that you know like this it gains more traction um because there's, there's far too many people you know not necessarily just with ptsd but just with depression and suicide uh suicidal thoughts or anxiety or whatever you know, struggling through life. And if there's an answer to it, then I'm all for it. Yeah, exactly. And, um, I, I really look at it as like this thing. It's a, it's a small hinge that swings like a really big door. And I know in the U S it's looking like, um, you know, the, the guy I was talking to Jesse Gould is saying that he, he the literature is saying the next one to two years. Now, granted this, this was, this assessment was pre COVID. So who the fuck knows now? Um, <laughs> but it was looking like about like a 90% chance that it was going to be, you know, available as a treatment option within the United States. Yeah. Well, I think, uh, I think CBD is still, still banned from military service in the UK, but I think recently the CBT just became legal in the States for military service, didn't it? I think so. And like uh, CBD, come the fuck on. Like, know. It's, you know, if you're not, if you, if you get the right stuff, it's not got any THC in, it's completely yeah. harmless. And it yeah. does, and it's amazing for people, for me, especially with like chronic, yeah. uh, chronic pain. It's so good. Like I'll yeah. take a couple of, couple of droplets when I get in real bad pain and like almost immediately, like I'll be able to have a, an amazing night's sleep. I'll, you know, be relatively pain free. Um, the only thing is it's, it's quite expensive to get good stuff. So, you know, you, you use it sparingly, but it's just, even if, if CBD is struggling to get through, like what really are the chances that, you know, we're going to start being able to give guys psychedelics and it's just stigma. That's all that's holding it back. Uh, the good thing is in the UK is that mental health, you know, the stigma about guys talking about their mental health is really being um, ramped up recently and it's become a subject that's, you know, gained a lot of traction and a lot more people are <clears throat> uh, coming out and 
um, talking about their, their mental health. So the stigma about that is, you know, is decreasing. So hopefully stigma about these uh, helpful psychedelics and also decreasing it, it can become the norm for, you know, for people who are struggling to get that, that treatment. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm hopeful as well on that same line because uh, there's a lot of people suffering out there. And if we can do something to help that out and, and intervene in there in some path, like we, we, I think we have to. Yeah. All right, man. Um, what sort of resources that we haven't touched on uh, that you maybe want to touch on before we wrap it up are out there? Oh. Um, Just off the top of your head, if you've got yeah, anyone, yeah. any of that are burning. Yeah, so uh, a, a huge shout-out, I'll say, this organization called uh, Bunker Labs. And if there's not something like it in the UK, then it, it's an excellent one for someone to, to jump on. Um, so their, their sole focus is creating community environment supportive to veterans and military spouses in entrepreneurship. And so the way that kind of works is they have some different programs to, to help aspiring entrepreneurs. Like they have a, a free online class you can take to kind of like test your idea out and, and think about it. And then if you have an, a, an idea kind of more formed and you're starting to work on something, they have a program where they, they put you in a fellowship essentially. And so for six months, you're considered a, a veteran in residence at one of their, their facilities. And they have some really great partnerships. So you get access to like legal resources. You get some like uh, free access to like different types of uh, business programs and everything. So just kind of help you get started. And, you know, paired in that is with some, some mentorship of, again, like volunteer people who <coughs> succeed in the entrepreneurial journey. It can help you out. And then additionally, they, they run meetings uh, of just community events of like getting together and having some beers and like having, you know, a speaker come in and talk about, talk about a different subject of starting a business. And it's all focused around getting veterans into the path of entrepreneurship. That sounds pretty insane. Like a, a massive resource for someone who, you know, wants to start their own business or has an idea that's, you know, burning a hole in their pocket. <clears throat> yeah. And even, I mean, I've, I've been to a few other events and it's not even that like everybody there is trying to start their own business. There's a number of people there who just like want to be a part of the veteran community. And uh, like they're, just, hang they're, out. Yeah, they're, 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 they're hanging out and they, they want to be supportive in some way. You know, they may, they may already have a business going or, or work somewhere and they say, Hey, listen, you know, when you get to this point or this stage, come let me know. And like my service can be of value to you. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. I think personally what you're doing is honestly like, um, you know, very, very useful um, to not just people in the US, but people abroad as well. And, you know, I commend you 100% for, for doing it. And, you know, because like I said, it started, you know, having the idea is one thing, but actually like getting down and, and dirty and starting is a different thing. So, yeah. Um, where can people find you then? Um, just so we can end it off on that and we can send them to you. Yeah, yeah. So the, the website is theveteranpro.com. Uh, the podcast is The Veteran Semi-Professional. I call it, so like the, the difference being I, I get into some topics like psychedelics and, um, you know, some other activities of, of value to veterans, right? Um, and then you can find me on all the social medias at, at The Veteran Professional. Awesome. Uh, you got anything to wrap out? No, no, no. This has been a ton of fun and I'm, I'm glad we got to connect over this. And it's, I've always loved working with the British Army. You guys are a ton of fun. 
And I'm glad we can like, you know, maintain that connection overseas and everything, even after, you know, leaving our militaries. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I agree with that as well. I've worked with the U S forces a, a few times, you know, on ops, um, not directly under their leadership or anything, but, um, you know, in and around uh, Kandahar and uh, Camp Bastion, you know, we'd, we'd head up to the American PX and just see what's going on up there and, yeah. you know, be jealous of all the fucking facilities that you guys have got, you know, come down to us and we've got like a little cafe that's too small to have a bloody section in there or squad in there. So, yeah, we'd, we'd always be up at Camp Leatherneck uh, busting in the PX and buying US Marine, uh, Marine Corps jerseys, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. But yeah, thank you very much, Mark, for taking the time out of your day to sit down and uh, knock us out. It's been a, it's been really great, and I think it's going to provide a lot of value to other people as well. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Thanks, man. Take care. Have a good day. Yeah, you too.